Alright, well, as you can see, we're not in the Old Testament anymore. Um, we are pivoting this morning from the Old Testament to the New, uh, to the book of Matthew. And one of the things that is interesting about the New Testament and about the Gospels in particular is as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, this just this incredible thing that the Lord has had planned throughout all of redemptive history... He spends time with his closest followers and the crowds and the religious leaders. And so often they have uncertainty, questions, confusion about who Jesus is and what he came to do. About who he is and what he came to do. Uh, Maybe you remember John the Baptist. Jesus actually says of him, of a person born of a woman, which is a lot of us, that's all of us. There was no greater. And John sends his disciples, his followers to Jesus to say, Jesus, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ, the anointed one? Or should we look to another? Can you imagine what Jesus is thinking as John the Baptist? If anyone should have figured it out really quickly and had it cemented in their minds and lived faithful following uh, his in his footsteps, it would be John the Baptist. John sends his guys, I imagine they sneak through the back door, in through the garage, and whisper into Jesus' ear, hey, we just got to know, just, like, just tell us once, are you the one? Remember Peter. Uh, Jesus has this moment with Peter at, towards the end of his earthly ministry. Jesus says, who do they say that, who, who does everybody say that I am? And they, go, they go around, and then Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus gives him a high five, an A-plus on his pop quiz, 100% on his test for the semester. And Jesus then uh, says, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood didn't teach you that. My Father in heaven made that clear to you. Like, you got it. He knew exactly who Jesus was. Then Jesus tells him, oh, by the way, in a a little bit, I'm going to give up my life, and these bad things are going to happen. And Peter says, shut up. That's not happening. That will never happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Some of you remember what Jesus says. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Get be- I, I, Peter's, Peter's puffing his chest out. Jesus had just said, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. Peter's thinking, that's right, because I'm Peter. I'm the rock. Then he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. If we don't get right who Jesus is and what he came to do, we will find ourselves being a hindrance to him, to his work, and possibly even left out of it. I think we're just as confused today as, as they were back then. Now, there's 2,000 Muslims in the world who believe that Jesus came and walked on the earth, that he was a great preacher, a moral teacher, a miracle worker. They even believe that he has ascended back up to heaven. They even believe that he's going to come again, but they think when he comes again, it's going to be to revive Islam. Not too far off, but miles and miles off at the same time, right? They believe so much about Jesus. But the devil's in the details. There's a half a billion uh, Buddhists in the world Uh, who believe that that Jesus was darn near the closest thing to exactly what they're aiming for, but they don't believe he was divine. Just as much confusion today as there was back then. And so as we open up Matthew 1 together, the first 17 verses, probably the 
most anticipated 17 verses of the entire Gospel of Matthew. It's a genealogy. Probably the most anticipated 17 verses of the entire Gospel of Matthew. I want us to be looking for uh, Jesus' arrival. Who is he and what did he come to do? Because I think Matthew is swinging for the fences here, but it kind of slides below the surface in helping us understand what is the gospel. Who is Jesus? What is this good news? That's gospel, good news. What did he come to do? Uh, Let's read together Matthew 1, uh, 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus. So stay with me. I know I just said the worst word that you can possibly say. I said genealogy, but stay with me. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. A lot of identity stuff right out the gate. Of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife Uriah, and Solomon, verse 7, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, verse 9, I need a breath, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, verse 11, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations. So all the generations uh, from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations from the deportation to babylon to the christ 14 generations so some of you are interested some of you are thinking i knew church was going to be boring um why a genealogy why what there's so limited space in the gospels why matthew why why the most prominent space the beginning why start with the genealogy and and so we're, we're kind of going to slowly unpack that this morning. Uh, but we, we got to see that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is going to be more than just historical fiction that engages our minds or engages our curiosity. It's more than just historical fiction. It's more than just good moral teaching, even though almost the entire world believes that it's fairly decent moral teaching. It's more than just good advice like diet 
exercise. It's more than that. It holds weight over us because the gospel is going to address our greatest need and it's going to define reality for us, define reality that we're broken and that Jesus came to do something about that brokenness. And so we want to see that Matthew lays a historical foundation to say this is not just good advice. This is not just interesting history. This is the good news that has the power to fix what is most profoundly broken about us. And it comes right out of the pages as history. Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. He says to his Jewish audience, just as much as you know the certainty of your historical background, of these, your ancestors and your fathers, know for certain that this is who Jesus is and this is what he came to do. Son of Abraham, son of David. And so I just want to look at those two titles as we consider the gospel is good news, not just good advice, not just interesting history. Matthew describes Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham. Uh, Starting first with the son of David, that reference alerts Matthew's Jewish audience to the fact that Jesus is the long-awaited king from the promise to David that there would be a man on the throne of David forever. Here's that promise from 2 Samuel 7. Uh, The promise spans almost a, a chapter, but verse 16 of chapter 7 says, And your house to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure of forever before me. Your throne, he repeats it, shall be established forever. What was the job of the Davidic line in the Old Testament? The job of the Davidic line in the Old Testament was to bring about God's work in his people. We described God's work, God's mission, two weeks ago. Uh, We said God's mission among us is to glorify himself through the work of rescuing people and restoring creation. That was to happen through the Davidic line as they provided protection for God's people, right? When the kings walked with God, the people were both protected, and another P word, they prospered. And then third, as the kings walked with God, it ensured that the presence of God would not depart from his people. When the kings and then the people turn their back on God, what happens to the presence of God? They build all of the altars, the presence of God departs, and it's not too long before judgment comes. So the Davidic line is essential, it's critical, it's God's chosen tool for prosperity for protection and ensuring that his presence remains with his people jesus is going to come with this identity title with this son of david title and he's going to usher in protection for his people right he's going to say no one will be able to snatch you out of my hands prosperity for his people an inheritance that will not rust or rot or be stolen or devalued or destroyed. He's going to ensure that God's presence remains with his people. Jesus departs and leaves his spirit. And even Jesus is fully God, fully man. His presence, God with us. Emmanuel, Jesus, fulfills what the Davidic line never could. We see repeatedly that Davidic kings fail. Jesus would be the king that will never fail. And so that's something for us to sink our teeth into today because all of us have been failed by people, some in really significant ways. Maybe you've been failed by a mother or a father 
who abandoned you. Parents maybe who abandoned their commitment to each other and it's left a significant hole, a scar, a mark in your life, on your life. Who you are now is in significant ways shaped by that failing. Maybe it's marriage. Your spouse, you thought it was forever and it hasn't worked out that way. You thought there would be a certain level of commitment and it hasn't worked out that way and you feel like that person has failed you. Some of us are on the other side. We've failed others. So we look in the mirror and that's what we see. Failure, 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 failure. And so as we read about the failures in the Old Testament of those Davidic kings, we're reminded that it all points to a king who would not, will not, won't ever fail. And so we can give our lives to that king because he won't fail in his protection and his prosperity and in ensuring the presence of God remains with us. That's the title, Son of David. You also see in verse 1 that uh, Matthew calls him Son of Abraham. This comes... uh, Out of Genesis 22, the reference to Abraham alerts God's people, alerts Matthew's Jewish audience that the scope of Jesus' ministry is going to be worldwide, that he will fulfill the promise given to Abraham through Jesus, that promise being to make them a great nation and even more to make them a blessing to all the nations of the world. We read about this in Genesis 22, uh, verses 17 and 18 or just a, a snapshot of that, that worldwide, that global scope of the future ministry and redemptive work of Jesus. Verse 17 of Genesis 22 says this, God to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Interestingly enough, Matthew is going to bookend his gospel. Here it is in Matthew 1 and then at the very end in Matthew 20 with this global perspective of what Jesus is doing. In Matthew 20 is the command to go into all the world and make disciples. Here in Matthew 1 is a reminder that Jesus is the son of Abraham to fulfill all the promises of God to Abraham. And a significant part of that was that they would be a blessing to the entire world. So the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news for the entire world. Now, uh, one of the things that at least comes to my mind when I think of good news for the world is well, okay, well, then I should expect to see some tidal wave of Christian movement, of, of um, godly character, of transformed hearts just sweeping the world. That's what we should see if the gospel is, is good news. Uh, and, of course, we look around and some of us go, hmm, you know, maybe I'm reading the wrong newspaper. Um, that doesn't seem to be what I see. I see darkness becoming more pervasive, right? I see greater evidence is what scripture says of men and women loving darkness and and not the light and and so matthew in the way that he's arranged this genealogy gives us some really uh, special guides to remind us that this great news this gospel is unstoppable it cannot be thwarted by the power of the enemy or by the power of men Uh, look at the way that uh, in Matthew 1, look at the way that these um, 
this genealogy is uh, organized. Read verse 17 one more time. Uh, It says this, it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. So the first pause, the first break in the genealogy after 14 is David. Verse uh, 17, the rest of that verse. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. So you, you have 14, you have David, you have 14, and then you have the deportation, and then you have 14 bookended by Abraham and by Uh, Jesus. Uh, And and so I just want to look at these two hinge points, the spot between the first and the second 14 and the spot between the second and the third 14. David and the deportation. David is especially interesting uh, to me uh, because David was anointed at a very young age that he would become king. But what happens? It takes 20 or 30 years for that to ever materialize, for that to ever become fulfilled and even when it is for fulfilled some of you remember he becomes king of judah he's got to wait like another seven years to get judah and israel it takes forever not just does it take forever but while david's waiting for this promise of god to be fulfilled he's attacked by king saul and he's perpetually hunted like an animal all throughout the countryside he lives in caves he lives in the desert he goes to his enemies pretends to be insane because that's better than the life he's living on the run from saul he's tortured tormented chased but we see that even though god's purposes are opposed by man His work is unstoppable. One of the defining moves of David's uh, rise to the king is multiple occasions where he could have killed Saul and essentially taken what God promised to be his for himself and at least in his mind ended this period of persecution. And what does David say each time he's given the opportunity to do that? He says, who am I to touch the Lord's anointed? Who am I to touch the Lord's anointed? God has something for me, but it's not his time. And because it's not his time, my hands are off. God is going to give it to him. Not in David's timing, not when David wanted it, but it was coming. And David recognized who ordered the events of history. David recognized who ordered the hands of kings, that God's work is unstoppable, that the gospel is unstoppable in spite of what we see around us and those who appear to be against it. What's the second hinge point between the second and the third group of 14? Uh, The deportation to Babylon. We could spend a lot of time on there, but we are transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament, so we should talk about the New Testament. Um, The deportation to Babylon. uh, In a nutshell, right, the people fail the kings fail. They all fail. God sends Nebuchadnezzar uh, in three waves. The people are, are carried off. There's a little remnant left in Jerusalem to, to kind of play house and uh, make the best of the pile of rubble that is there. The deportation to Babylon stands as a monument of what happens when God's people blow it. They have fallen flat on their face in an epic way. And in Jeremiah, we see that God sent these kings to take over uh, Judah to the southern tribes uh, and that they would be in captivity until God said it was time to go 
back. And so one of the really significant movements of the deportation, one of the really significant themes of the deportation is the reminder that God doesn't quit on his people even when his people have quit or have failed on him. And so in David, we see that the gospel is unstoppable regardless of who is opposed to it. So regardless if the Ten Commandments get taken out of federal buildings, regardless if Starbucks says happy holidays instead of Christmas, regardless of whatever might happen as evidence that the powers that be or the population in general is opposed to God's work. His work is unstoppable and going forward with the deportation. We see that his work is unstoppable and going forward in spite of his people's failed efforts to play their part, to keep their end of the deal. His work still goes forward. We see with the beginning of Matthew here, The gospel is good news. The gospel is unstoppable. All those Davidic kings couldn't do it. Jesus came to do what they couldn't. It is interesting to note that the genealogy is littered with failures. And so we're reminded that this good news, this gospel, still is something that we have to believe and receive. It's not enough to know about it. All those kings knew about it. The people in all those periods knew about it. It's not enough to try to uh, make some sort of half-hearted efforts to adhere to a religious system or some rules or some precepts. The good news is a gift, right? The God-man Jesus entering into humanity to fix what is most broken, but we have to receive and believe that gift. There's a whole bunch of people in this genealogy who knew a little bit about it but had no part of it. Third, for this morning, there's all this good news in this genealogy. Uh, God's work going forward despite of what we see. God's work going forward in spite of our own failures. Um, there's four really interesting caveats in this genealogy. All four of those caveats point to a lady in what is otherwise a very male-dominant genealogy. Uh, And it seems like Matthew's not just including those four details, but that he's drawing our attention to their stories. Because presumably, every other man on that list had a wife, and by that wife then produced the child listed. But these four are mentioned. And in the case of the fourth, Bathsheba, Matthew doesn't even use her name. He says, he describes her as the wife of Uriah. In other words, it doesn't matter who she was. Let me tell you, Matthew says, about the mess, about the story, about the sin. So if Matthew wants us to look, um, let's look. Uh, I want us to see that the gospel is for moral for gender and for ethical, ethnical uh, outsiders because they are littered throughout his genealogy to point us from where he came and for whom he came. Uh, let's read verses 3 through 6. Just list those. It says, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerar, here's the first one, by Tamar. That's in verse 3. Tamar is the first. Uh, it says, And Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, uh, Jump to verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by, here's number 2, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by number 3, Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. And David, the father of Solomon. Here it is, by Bathsheba. No, by the wife of 
Uriah. Um, let's talk Tamar for just a minute. You can find her story in Genesis 38. Essentially, uh, Judah is the head of the family, has three boys. Tamar marries the oldest son. Uh, the oldest son dies. There's no children per Jewish law. If the older son dies with no children, the second son is supposed to step into his place to bring children so that his family line can continue. Uh, the second son, I think his name is Onan, basically says, no, nah, I don't want to do that. That's weird. Um, and so he doesn't, and God kills him. And now Judah, father of three boys, is now down to one boy and looks at Tamar and I would imagine says, eh, you know, that's not happening again. I, I love my family. I would like my boy uh, to continue. So he keeps his third son away from her. When she discovers that she's been duped, when she discovers that she's been discarded by her own father-in-law, she takes off her mourning garments, the garments that a widow uh, would wear, and she finds out where she's going to be. And in one of the more PG-13 slash rated R stories of the Bible, she poses as a prostitute along the path where she knows he's going to be. He takes the bait. He can't pay her at the moment, so she asks for a pledge of future payment. He essentially takes his wallet out and gives her his driver's license. Months go by. She goes home. He finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant, prepares to have her killed, and then she sends his driver's, li- or dr- his driver's license back to him as rod and a staff and a garment from his jacket and maybe even a ring sends it back and says by this man this man is the father of my child and his response is you are more righteous than i you are more righteous than i is what he says tamar was discarded and abandoned by her own family uh, but she was not discarded or abandoned by god and The lineage of Jesus includes people that were discarded and abandoned so that we would know that those are the people that Jesus came to save. He rescued her out of her abandonment and didn't just put her back into the family. He puts her into the royal lineage. So what we see with all four of these individuals is they're not just rescued out of their circumstances and then maybe allowed to attend church on Sunday or allowed to be at family dinners. He puts them into the royal line. This is such a beautiful picture of going from darkness to light where we're not just welcomed into God's family and tolerated. We're welcomed into God's family, not just tolerated, but celebrated as as she becomes part of the royal lineage that leads to Jesus. Uh, That's Tamar. The second one is Rahab. More of you maybe know her story. Rahab in the book of Joshua. Uh, You remember Joshua sends spies into Jericho. Jericho, a city so wicked, so vile, that God says, destroy this whole thing. Spies go into Jericho. Uh, They find Rahab's house. The king is looking for them, must know that the spies are in town. Uh, Rahab houses these spies when the king says send them out she lies and says they snuck out the gate hurry you might be able to catch them and she corners them and she says i will help you but you better spare me my family and my family's family and they say everyone who is in this house will be spared but if they go out of this house it's not our fault 
Jericho, a wicked city. Rahab, a prostitute from a wicked city. She is deeply entrenched in the pervasive wickedness of her culture. In no way is she described as someone who was the top of the moral barrel in this moral cesspool. She is right in the midst of it with the rest of Jericho. But God calls her out of this pervasive wickedness and is going to put her in the royal lineage as Jesus' family tree is going to show us that people that have been ensnared in pervasive wickedness are part of his family tree and exactly who he came to save. It's fascinating her especially because when the spies come in, she looks at them and says, we wave the white flag of surrender. Our hearts have melted. She says, I know that your God is the God of the living. The rest of Jericho heard and knew the same thing Rahab did, but we see that God in his mercy just snatches Rahab, just picks her up out of this wicked culture, and he sets her down right into the middle of the messianic lineage, right in the middle of Jesus' family tree. That is from darkness to light. Ruth, also from verse 5. You can read more about Ruth in the book by her own name. Uh, Ruth uh, had a mother. Her mother's name was Naomi. Naomi had two boys. Both of those boys married girls. Um, Both of those boys died. And so now mom, Naomi, is left with two daughter-in-laws. And this is not good because the daughter-in-laws are Moabites, which means they're outsiders. They're foreigners. They would not be welcome when she went home. So she looks at her daughters and she says, you guys should leave because the only chance you really have now without a husband or someone to protect you or a means of support is to go back to your families and maybe they'll accept you, welcome you in and take care of you. One daughter says, you're right, I'm out. Uh, This is what Ruth says to her mother from Ruth 1 verses 16 and 17. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death separates me from you. That's a different response, isn't it? That's a really different response, and some of you know that follows Naomi. They go home to Naomi's land and the Lord brings a man who takes care of all of them, who marries Ruth. And Ruth, uh, this woman, uh, helpless, uh, trapped in obscurity as someone without someone to look after them. And the Lord rescues her out of her helplessness and out of her obscurity and places her in the royal lineage to show this is the family tree of Jesus and this is the type of person that Jesus came to save. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, one more. Uh, Bathsheba, probably the most well-known of the four. We read about her in 2 Samuel. Some of you know that uh, the men are away at war. Uh, David sees her bathing on her roof. David says, why don't you send her over? She accepts his invitation. Uh, they, she becomes pregnant. Uh, David kills her husband. Uh, so, so not a great story, right? Not one that you would put in your lineage if you were telling some great story about how wonderful your ancestors are. Some of you have done Ancestry.com, and so you have these really 
Sometimes they're interesting. You have these really interesting stories about where you came from, and so we all want to celebrate. Well, I think there was a king like 5,000 years ago that, that I was, came from, or there was someone who did something great that I'm related to, and therefore I'm great because they were great. Um, this is not the kind of story you put in your family tree. This is not the kind of story you record for all the world to see. David and Bathsheba failed uh, epically. David and Bathsheba failed publicly. And the Lord rescues her from this epic collapse, this epic failure, this colossal misstep and sets her in the royal lineage. To her, Solomon is born, of whom God says, my presence will never depart. She's in the royal lineage to show that people who have failed epically are part of Jesus' family tree and that Jesus came to save people who have failed epically. And so one of the things we see here is uh, as we consider that the gospel is good news, that it is unstoppable and that it is for outsiders that there is no one who has run so far that they're beyond the reach, beyond the power to save of our God. And this is what Jesus is doing. This is who he is as the son of God sent from the father to glorify himself by restoring creation and mankind. I don't know where, I don't know where you um, identify this morning. Uh, some of you identify with one of those four ladies, uh, uh, discarded, um, helpless, and obscure, um, so entrenched in pervasive wickedness that, that there's no hope. Um, uh, or, or maybe there's just an epic failure on your record somewhere, and that's just who you believe you are, and you can't see beyond, around, over, or under that blemish. Uh, and so if you're in one of those spots today, I would say you don't have to leave today the same way that you came in. I hope it's fairly clear from this list, from this very exciting genealogy, that you are exactly who was on Jesus' mind when Jesus was on the cross. If you're here today and you were once in that boat and you're not in that boat anymore, do you, do you get a sense of, of who the Father might send you to? Of what kind of people he might send you to, might send you to people who feel discarded and broken and helpless and obscure, entrenched in pervasive wickedness, or that their life has been just one big epic failure. And, and for some of us, we'd say, yes, Lord, send me to those people. Send me to those people. Um, until God does, and then we say, God, can you get this boss out of my life, please? Can you get this coworker to transfer to uh, another office, please? Because... These people aren't excited to see you. If they've got an epic failure, they'd rather just live in, ob- epics, in obscurity with their epic failure and not show the whole world the awful things that they already think and believe about themselves. So when you reach out to that person, there's going to be walls up, walls upon walls upon walls upon walls, maybe some guns and maybe some barbed wire, and that's going to hurt. Uh, you have... Ruth, you have obscurity, you have Tamar discarded, uh, 
people that live in helpless obscurity, people that live feeling like they have been discarded by God, by life, by uh, family, by friends, uh, that, that makes you want to pull back. It doesn't make you want to step in. And so when God sends you to those people, they're not going to respond. They're not going to be, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad. That's such good news. Uh, it's going to be bristly. It's going to hurt. So when we say, yes, God, send me, just know that this is who Jesus came for, and this is who we're sent to. And lest we run the risk of thinking this is a them, not us. Uh, Romans 3 is a, is a great passage to end with because it reminds us that this speckled lineage, uh, this uh, family tree so wrought with dysfunction is us. This is a lineage that we're a part of. Um, Paul in Romans 3 reminds us that this is all of us. It's not an us and a them. He says in Romans 3, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, so everyone are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So this is good news. It is unstoppable news. It is good news for outsiders. But we are acutely reminded in this text that we are all outsiders but for the grace of God. And that should give us a profound humility, a profound humility as we relate to others, a profound humility as we consider that God has called us out of Jericho and into the family tree, uh, out of obscurity, abandoned by family and into the royal lineage, out of epic failures and pervasive wickedness and into his forever family and he knew what he was getting into when he saved you i'm gonna i'm hoping to uh, coach one of our kids sports teams this winter uh, and i know what i'm getting into sort of and what i mean by that is is i know it's not going to go perfect i know they're not going to listen all that well follow instructions just as i would imagine i know that they're not going to run plays like professional sports teams uh on tv i I know that we're going to mess around a little bit we're going to have a little fun hopefully they're going to laugh and if they learn something in all that great i i kind of know what i'm getting into some of us act like jesus didn't know what he was getting into uh when he saved us and just looks at us like one big colossal disappointment and failure after another he knew what he was getting this is who he came for he came for you. We can step into that light that the gospel through Jesus has made possible. If you're here and you're on the outside looking in, come up at the end of the service. We would love to tell you what it means to receive and to believe and to, to follow Jesus. Uh, maybe you're here and, and, and you have, and you're still relating with maybe one of those four women. Um, let me just say, allow, allow someone near you to be a part of that journey. Allow someone near you... Uh, Allow someone on staff, someone you trust, someone that's up here that is willing and wanting to pray with you, but allow someone to be on that journey with you out of darkness and into light. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled. Uh, We know we don't belong. We know we're outsiders. Um, We know that all we brought with us was uh, junk and and baggage and dysfunction. We know we didn't bring anything to the table. Uh, Your eyes... Uh, didn't light up uh, when you saw us because we have so much to offer. Lord, it, it, your eyes lit up because of who you are and your love for us. And, and Lord, that you sent uh, Jesus uh, long before us, but with us in mind. And, and so, Lord, whatever barriers uh, the enemy has put in front of us, whatever 
whatever is holding us back, whatever is that anchor, uh, Lord, for us that keeps us from fully stepping into the light, I pray that you would loosen those chains this morning. I pray that you would break those chains this morning. I pray that this morning would be a significant time, Lord, as we uh, step forward understanding uh, who you are, what you came to do, uh, Lord, and that, that you came for us. Uh, Lord, impress the weight of that upon our hearts that we might not respond with compulsion, but respond with joy. Lord, with, with service uh, out of gratitude. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.